You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, and thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can get more from Milk Street by following us on Instagram at 177MilkStreet. There you can find cooking tips, videos from our kitchen staff, and free recipes to change the way you cook. That's Instagram at 177MilkStreet. Now, please enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Missy Robbins is here to teach us the rules of making great pasta and sauces at home. Lesson number one, the most important ingredient is the one you leave out. I do a mushroom dish. I want it to be about the mushrooms. If I'm going to do a fennel dish, I want it to be about the fennel. And I edit myself by always remembering that because often you still have a tendency to kind of say like, oh, what does that need? And often what it needs is for you to take something out of it. First up, it's my interview with chef and writer Romy Gill. For her book on the Himalayan Trail, Gill traveled across Kashmir and Ladakh in search of recipes and stories. Romy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So for your book, you traveled all over Kashmir. Uh, So why did you choose Kashmir and then what did you find? Since I was a young girl, I've always wanted to go to Kashmir because if you know India, if you know the map of India, India is a very big country. We speak different languages. We look different. We have very different rituals. Uh, Food is very different. So, you know, I used to watch as a little girl Bollywood films, all these actors and actresses running around the snow. And, and you know, where I grew up, there was no snow. I had never seen snow. And then when I met my husband, he's a computer chip designer. So he used to travel on his scooter to all these places in Himalayas. And he used to show me all these photographs. So I was very, very fascinated with that. You know, one of the recipes I really loved was simple. It's red kidney beans. You actually, you could use a can of kidney beans. But you heat some ghee, you add some whole spices, you fry them, add some ground spices, and cook it for 15 minutes. I just love the idea of infusing a fairly bland ingredient like kidney beans with all these spices, which I think in in some ways kind of summarizes what I love about this style of cooking. Thank you for saying that, because I just think that the recipes in the books is, I know somebody will say, oh, where do I find the black cardamom or where do I find the shajira? The shajira, I have to explain, which is the black cumin. It's, you cannot overpower it. You have to use it like a pinch. It just smells like, I don't know if you know tonic water. Mm-hmm. So it smells like that. So you have to make sure you're adding it less. And then if you have these store cupboard ingredients, if you buy these, you can make so many different dishes with that. So cooking goat or lamb in yogurt, why cook in yogurt? Does it actually change texture? Does it change flavor? What what is the yogurt doing for you? So actually, it not only tenderizes meat or vegetarian dishes, but also it gives that creaminess. Uh, And also yogurt is something which is used widely in India in very, very different dishes. But I think these spices, when they use for certain dishes, certain things like when they use in gushtaba, which is a meatball, which is cooked in the yogurt and then added mint on the top, it just works. I think yogurt, mint and the spices, it works really well with the creaminess, but also gives you a nice kind of a sour taste to the dishes. You know, 
many cultures have meatballs, and that includes Kashmiri cuisine too. But you stuff your meatballs with apricots, which I thought was really interesting. My friend, who is a wonderful chef called Pratik, he's Kashmiri Pandit. So his his mom said that, you know, Kashmiri Pandits use this as a meatball and they add the apricots when they're cooking. It is the utterly most delicious dish because when you're biting in the meat, the sweetness comes and then the wonderful spices that has when we are cooking the broth. I mean, you know, you can find any apricots in the world, but those apricots, maybe the soil is different. It's just the most delicious apricots in the world. Well, you have the most delicious. We have the worst. So I, <laughs> I, I, I haven't had a good apricot in 20 years for whatever reason. Um, you talk a lot about cashmere saffron and you talk about the fact there's a lot of fake saffron in the world or low quality. So is cashmere saffron the best in the world, you think? It is indeed the best in the world. Um, the soil makes so much difference. And the way they do it, the families still come together and, you know, work on the farm and as a whole family work together. The saffron fields only bloom for a few weeks. You know, you get really few stigmas out of a saffron and they use each part of the flower. But if you don't know the right and the wrong saffron, the saffron, which is is from Kashmir. It's more floral. It's got the most lovely taste to it. And I have tasted so many different saffrons from Iran and from Spain and from other parts where they grow. I, I still think the saffron in Kashmir is the best in the world. Harissa, you know, most people think about chili paste, but harissa is also a mutton recipe in Kashmir, right? It is. It is. Um, and it's also in Hyderabad in India, they have the harissa as well, where there is a Muslim culture. So when I went there, you know, I um, tasted the harissa. It's very heavy. You cannot eat too much of it, but it's the most delicious. And it's a labor of love. If you're going to make it at home, it's a labor of love because it takes longer time. The meat is cooked on the bone. And then once it's slow cooked for a long time, then you shred it and then you cook it in the rice flour and then you blitz it and then you eat it with a flatbread. That's how I tasted in Chai Jai, which is a really modern cafe. And then I went to the old town, which is the old city in Srinagar, where a lot of workers, you know, who go to work in the morning will go at five o'clock and eat that. And it keeps you filled for a whole day it's so heavy you can't it's very rich and heavy but it's the most delicious thing to have but it's a labor of love so give me one recipe uh that would be a good introduction for people they they can make at home that would really sort of sum up some of the great ways of thinking about food in Kashmir. I think the tabak mas, which is super easy, and the sheik kebabs are super, super easy. But um, in sheik kebabs, uh, people might need saffron to have that flavor. If you don't have it, it's fine too. But tabak mas, which are the ribs, all you do is boil the meat and spices and then you fry them, shallow fry them or deep fry them. It's up to you. But it's fried in ghee, which is so much nicer. If you don't know what ghee is, it's clarified butter or if you can use oil as well to do that. That's the most easiest thing to do. I would recommend people to do that. Romy, it's been a real pleasure. And now I have a new destination, Kashmir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Romy Gill, author of On the Himalayan Trail. Next up, it's time to answer some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, 
also author of Home Cooking 101. Hey, Sarah, so you live in New York. Obviously, COVID's been going on for a while. Did you see your local food scene in your neighborhood change somehow during that time? What happened? There was none. Absolutely none. All the restaurants shut down. And then, Hmm. as you know, what started happening, which was a happy thing, which I hope continues, although it's controversial, is all these outside areas where people can eat outside. And suddenly we're looking like Paris, you know, except you're sitting next to the subway grates. It's not quite quite so uh, cozy. What about the restarting of restaurants? Have a lot of them come back? They have. Um, We lost some. We definitely did. They're still lacking in staffing, for Mm. sure. You know, I walk around every day I walk, and on weekends, the young people are out. It's jam-packed. It's like you feel a joy. You know, they're all out on the prowl. You know, they're all looking for love. It's all the way it used to be. In all the wrong places. (laughs) I don't know about that. You know what I love? I love to go buy a restaurant that's packed now that was empty a year and a half ago. That does give you joy. Right, right. All right, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jill Heretzik from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Jill. How can we help you today? Hi, I have a question about baking with frozen blueberries. Okay. The recipes I've been using, I notice always say if you're using frozen blueberries, to use them, like keep them frozen, don't thaw them out. Right. And the challenge I have with it is that, like just recently I was making a blueberry coffee cake, and what I noticed was, the temperature was 350 in the oven for about like an hour. Because the blueberries were frozen, I ended up keeping it in there for like 90 minutes, which then just baked the sides, the edges, but not the center. And then it took like another hour. It was just a big mess. So I was wondering if you had any recommendations for that. Wow. I think something else is going on besides the blueberries. Have you ever made that particular coffee cake with fresh blueberries? No, first time. Everything I've ever heard corroborates what you just said, which is you should use the blueberries frozen. If you don't want them to sink to the bottom, you can toss them in a little flour or something. And you should increase the cooking time slightly, but not by a half an hour to an hour. I mean, that's crazy. Maybe you could tell us, you know, what were the ingredients in the cake and what kind of pan you cooked it in. Okay. It was an 8 by 8 inch pan. And then for the cake, it said two cups of fresh blueberries, fresh or frozen, flour, baking powder, baking soda, salt, cinnamon, nutmeg, sugar, grated um, lemon zest. How much flour? Two cups of flour. Well, I think that's the problem right there. Are you sure it said two cups of blueberries? Because two cups of flour and two cups of blueberries seems kind of crazy. Yeah, it says one pint and then in parentheses, two cups of blueberries. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would normally expect half a cup of blueberries, a three-quarter cup, or not more than a cup. There's just not enough batter, and so you're ending up cooking a wet mess in the middle, right? Yeah. I agree 100%. I would just find a different recipe. I would say that's probably the problem. You can thaw out the blueberries if you want, toss them in flour, and then make sure you get rid of the excess, but... I'm with you and Sarah. I I normally would just throw in the frozen ones. Yeah, I agree. So it was supposed to be an hour. You cooked it for an hour and a half or two hours. And when you got finished Uh cooking it, what was the inside like? After 90 minutes, I didn't want the sides to burn or overcook. So then I just cut out the sides 
I love it. I kept kept stabbing it with a fork to see if the center was done. And then after like two hours, it was just this gross mess that just was stabbed with a fork to death. So You made one terrible mistake. You did not capture this for TikTok because... (laughs) This would have gone viral. It's not you, it's the recipe. It is the recipe, absolutely. Not your fault at all. And it's not the blueberry's fault either. So find a better recipe, that's all. Go to Serious Eats, for example. I always trust their work. And look for a blueberry recipe like that. I think you'll see a very different proportion. Yes, yes. Jill, take care. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks, bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Peyton. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from hot and humid Orlando, Florida. (laughs) (laughs) How can we help you? So I love to cook, especially if I have a glass of wine or like three. (laughs) But I have found myself not cooking as often lately. I'm cooking for one. And when I do cook, it's with a recipe. And I'm stuck eating the same thing for a week or I'm stuck with all of these ingredients that I have no idea what to do with. And they just go bad. I'm wondering, can you help me cook for one and help me get out of this recipe rut? Oddly enough, I do cook for one. My kids often don't like what I make, and my wife is eating yogurt for dinner or something. So I like to think about three categories, rice, beans, and pasta. So on a Sunday, if you roast a chicken, like I often do, or roast a pork tenderloin or whatever, some protein, you can repurpose that in different ways by changing the base. You can use beans as a base, lentils, or you can use white beans or black beans. You can use rice as a base. You can use pasta as a base. So cooking a protein on a Sunday, repurposing it with different bases is another way of looking at it. Another way to think about it is to reverse it. And I'll make a big pot of black beans, for example, in an instant pot on a Sunday. That can go into all sorts of things, right? You can put that on rice. You can make a burrito out of it. You can refry it. I like basic things that pair with other things that work really nicely. A pot of rice has a zillion possibilities. You can uh, add saffron to it. You can add spices to it. You can add protein to the top of it. You can also start with a sauce. You can do a, a classic soy sauce with some sort of vinegar or acid and a little bit of sugar or fish sauce that way with lime juice and make a bunch of that, and that can go over udon noodles or soba noodles or just over the roast chicken. So just having a simple sauce and a simple protein and some bases lets you mix and match. That's how I cook. Now, Sarah's going to tell you about her soup. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, But let me just say, I agree with what Chris said, you know, in terms of all those starches are really great backdrops for protein. Other places you could repurpose uh, leftovers is in soup. Also, frittatas are fantastic. That's a good one. You take leftover cooked vegetables and meats and even pastas and beans and just put it in a skillet, add some eggs, start it on top of the stove till the bottom sets, and then finish it in the oven. Also, burritos or just rolling things up in tortillas and warming them up. But the other thing I was going to say, there's a couple of books out for cooking for two, which at least will help you sort of narrow it down so you're cooking smaller amounts. One was done by Joe Yonan, and another one, Chris, who was Julia Child's editor? Judith Jones. Judith Jones. Judith Jones did a cooking for two. One final thing. Let's say you have a whole big head of broccoli, and you know you're not going to eat it all. 
roast the whole thing or steam the whole thing because it will freeze beautifully once it's cooked. Okay. Milk Street did publish a book called Cookish, which has six ingredients. Most of this stuff is half an hour less, and what it has is big flavors. It uses fermented sauces, chilies, spices, garlic, ginger, etc. You get a ton of flavor, and it's quick. So That's exactly what I need. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Peyton. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to save you from culinary disaster. Please give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Aaron Vaught. Hi, Aaron. Where are you calling from? I'm coming from Arizona. What is your question today? How can we help you? So I was wondering about chicken breasts, how to make chicken breasts, like to cook them moist. Because I'll cook them and they'll be pretty dry on the grill. So either the grill or oven, stovetop, any suggestions on how to to make them a a bit more moist for the family? Because the kids, uh, they don't seem to like that famous dried chicken breast. (laughs) Well, chicken is really a conundrum because you have to cook it well done or well enough done because of the issues with salmonella and campylobacter. So it's not one of those ones where we could blithely say, well, undercook it slightly. Although there is always carryover cooking time, so you can undercook it slightly, but then let it sit and finish cooking. Okay. So are you talking about thick chicken breasts, thin chicken breasts? Boneless thick chicken breasts. Okay. What I do is I almost always coat it in flour, and specifically one-draw flour. One-draw flour, which is an instantized flour, it's the stuff that our grandmothers used to thicken gravies (laughs) because it doesn't lump up. But what it also does is it tends to protect the quote-unquote white meat. So I use it also for boneless pork chops. And you'll find that just that little bit of extra insulation seems to help. So what I'll do is I'll coat the chicken breasts in that, and then I'll saute them. If they're really thick, you might want to let them finish a bit in the 350 oven for a few minutes, uh, looking for temperature about what, Chris, do you think 160? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the thickest part of the breast, and then get them out and let them rest. But then I would make a sauce, often I make a sauce in the pan, add a little chicken broth, and when you put the chicken back in briefly, a little bit of the flour will come off and thicken the sauce, and that helps. Another thing you could do is to pre-salt it, you know, okay. dry brine it, and let it sit covered in the fridge, you know, for an hour, salt it on both sides, and then mm-hmm. pat it dry before you cook it, and that will help too. Okay, and that'll help on the grill. Well, the grill is a whole different ball game. On the grill, I think okay. your best friend would be just undercooking it. But salting it also would help there, too, and making sure you pat it dry and oil it before you get it on the grill, and then let it rest before you slice it. I mean, really, give it time like any other meat. Anyway, Chris. Okay. Three things. So first of all, you are determined to grill the chicken, or can we have other cooking methods? That would be the preferable way to cook it, but I'm open to suggestions. I mean, I'm sure you guys have tons of ideas, so I'm open. If you want to grill it, which is, you know, walking on the wild side, I'd brine it. Skinless, boneless chicken breasts you can do in like half an hour. It's very quick. And make sure you pat them dry. And then chicken should never be cooked over high heat on a grill. I'd use Mm medium-low heat, and it'll be fine. The best way to do it is to poach it. So... Get the chicken breasts, put them in water that's at 175 degrees. 
You could use chicken stock, but that's going to cost you more money. I would take a quarter cup or half cup, probably half a cup of soy sauce in a couple quarts of water because the soy sauce has some salt in it, which is great. And then put the chicken in and keep maintain that temperature 175 until the chicken breasts come up to 160 or 165. And that'll give you really, okay. it's sort of a sous vide without a sous vide machine. That works really yeah. well. The last suggestion I have, if you want to grill, the best way to do chicken is spatchcock it, which means you get a, a heavy pair of scissors or a knife and cut out the backbone and flatten it and cook that on the mm-hmm. grill flattened. Dry it off, oil, salt, medium low, and then you'll get perfectly cooked chicken. But you really need the bones in the skin to protect the chicken because if you have boneless, skinless chicken breasts on Has the no grill protection. is really – you got to be really careful. But I would definitely brine it if you do that, or poach it is the best method. Brine or poach. Okay, very good. Yeah. I will actually probably try all of that. Great. Right, to see which one I can do best. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Chef Missy Robbins teaches us Pasta 101. That's coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, 
you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Missy Robbins. She's the chef owner of the restaurants Lilia and Missy in Brooklyn. She's also the author of Pasta, the Spirit and Craft of Italy's Greatest Food with Recipes. Missy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. There are three reasons I love you in this book. Let me, let me do them in order. <laughs> the first is, and I've been fighting this fight for 30 years, in Italy, people flavor olive oil with garlic like a smashed clove. And this idea of mincing garlic and throwing it all over the place is crazy. And, and you agree with me, which is great. Uh, number two, Tuscany's overrated. Yes. And three, <laughs> stop throwing dried oregano in your tomato sauce. Oh. So there we go. Uh, no matter what else happens in this book, I'm, I'm on your side. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with what is regional. I mean, it's kind of a stupid question, I guess, but is there something that underlies or is foundational about regional Italian cooking that is unique, you think, to Italy? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut, and, and what I knew of Italian food was sort of the red sauce, southern Italian, and I didn't really understand that there was other food, and I think at the time when I grew up, if you went to a northern Italian restaurant, usually that just kind of denoted that it was fancier, um, and it had a veal chop on the menu, and <laughs> when I when I really started getting into Italian cooking... I, I didn't even understand what regional cooking was. I learned very quickly there were 20 regions in Italy, and each one has a really distinctive cuisine, and that's based on geography, culture, ingredients. Um, you know, what you, what you find in the north is very different than what you find in the south. It also has to do with sort of socioeconomic differences in regions, but yeah, I think basically what you have in Italy is 20 different cuisines. And I, I think that's what's really kept me so interested in it for so long is that there's always something new to discover. Let's start with 
flour. Do you want to explain to listeners what double zero is? And yeah. which Because I think there's some confusion about what that means. And also whether you want a soft wheat, you want some Molina, some Durham wheat in there. What's the right mix? So I, I do two different things. So for my fresh egg dough, I use only double zero. And let me preface all of this by this is personal preference. This is years of making pasta and experimenting and tasting and deciding that this is my, my thing. And I don't like shun anyone else for doing it another way, but this is how I do it. Um, so double zero, double zero is a very finely milled, very powdery, soft flour in its simplest terms. And it just mixed with egg yolk, which is also the only way I make my egg dough. I don't use any whites in it. Just creates this very, very tender pasta. And it's what I kind of learned when I was in Italy. And then what I learned when I went to work with Tony Monsuano in Chicago. And that was really my, my real education in Italian cooking and pasta. And I think that gets ingrained in you when you're a young chef and you sort of pick up on things that seem right because more than one person is doing them in, in a place that you learned. And then for my extruded dough, which is basically what, what you make dried pasta with, I use semolina and water. And then um, for sort of hand-shaping southern shapes, so that orchiette, trophier, things like that, I actually created a dough for this book because I, I had never used that in the restaurants. And I, I am so pleased with this dough, but I, I came up with a ratio of um, semolina water and a little bit of double zero, which just creates, again, a little bit more tenderness, but also the semolina and the water allows it to have stretchiness, which you need for those shapes. You have to be able to like pull them in, in a way that you don't when you're making you know, a fettuccine, for instance. So let's do some do's and don'ts, uh, just basic pasta making. You mentioned you use egg yolks. You don't use whole eggs. What, why not the whites? The yolks just make a richer, less elastic dough. Okay. And for fresh pasta, I just want that like kind of, I want structure in it, but I, I want it to be really tender and elegant and with like a little less bite than white yields. And you also said that all of the moisture in the dough is provided by the egg yolk, correct? Yes, I get a lot of um, DMs on my Instagram saying, do you think you made a mistake in your recipe? Because how could you use 24 yolks? And I'm like, I'm fairly certain that after three and a half years, three testers, a writer, an editor, that I I didn't make a mistake. (laughs) Um, Never put oil in water when you're cooking pasta. Why not? Yeah, that's a big one. That's a that's a very important one. And the reason it's not just like an old wives tale, what happens is if you add oil to your water, the oil slicks the pasta. And the whole idea of pasta when you take it out of the water and put it in the sauce is that you want that sauce to absorb into the pasta. And the oil will prevent it from doing that. It'll just slick right off. You said something really interesting about adding the salt to the cooking water and that's the salt for the recipe, that you don't really need much additional salt. Yeah, I mean, we we barely use, I mean, we use salt in our sauces. So if we have, a, you know, our pork sausage sugo or our 30 clove sauce or our diavola sauce, there's salt in those recipes. But when we're cooking at the restaurant or I'm cooking at home, we're salting the water, which gives the pasta itself flavor. 
Um, right. If you don't right. salt your water, you're going to end up with a very bland dish. But I'm very rarely adding extra salt to the pan. You, you'll end up between like a lot of my pastas definitely are finished with cheese, which has salinity itself. And the pasta water, you don't really need it. And that pasta water also ends up in the dish. So it's not that you're just cooking the pasta in that salty water. Some of that water is is going into the pan with right. the final product. So you reserve some of the cooking water and yeah. add it as you need to. Um, a gentle boil versus a hard boil, when do you use each of them? Gentle boil I use for mostly filled pastas. And the reason that is, is most of my fillings are pretty delicate. They're made with whipped ricotta. They break easily. And so I've come up with sort of this method where you know, I think we're all taught to boil pasta. Do not put it in. And, and, and by simmer, I mean a true simmer. So there's a slow, a slow boil, but it really prevents the, the pasta, the insides from breaking and allows the pasta to cook at the right rate. So you undercook the pasta and then marry the sauce and the pasta and let them cook together. How do you judge how much to undercook the pasta before you finish it with the sauce? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I mean, I think... It's all feel like it's hard to, that's the problem with writing a cookbook. I wanted to write a whole book without recipes at all. Uh, but I was, I was denied that. And, uh, yeah, I think, I I think part of it is kind of trial and error. It also depends on, you know, if you're buying pasta in a store, every pasta cooks at a different rate. And so you have to keep taking a piece out and really testing it to feel where, where it is. Uh, Cacio e pepe is really hard because it gets gluey or it's kind of, you know, it congeals and sets up and it's a difficult dish. Do you have some advice for people who want to make, you know, pasta with cheese and pepper? Yeah, it's all, I mean, that dish is all about balancing cheese and pasta water and the correct amount of heat or no heat. It's, it's again, one of those dishes that appears to be so simple, but really is so technique driven. And, and listen, I've been cooking pasta for many years now, and I have screwed up cacio e pepe many times in my own home kitchen. It's just, you have to get that balance of the pasta water kind of creates the creaminess. And when do you put the cheese in and taking off the heat to make sure that the cheese doesn't clump? It's complicated. I commend people who put cacio e pepe on their menus. Do you have any advice for people making home? Patience. Patience. Patience and like don't just throw everything in the pan at once. Like you really have to add the cheese at the right moment and you really have to kind of use that cheese and pasta water as like a yin and yang to each other. Okay. Um, What are a few pieces of equipment you mentioned a lot in the book, but are there two or three things if you want to make your own pasta at home you'd really recommend things that people might not think of? Well, I mean, I think number one is a, is a pasta roller, you know, a, a, a sheeter. They're very inexpensive and, you know, they're kind of like the workhorse of a fresh pasta dough. There's a lot of cool tools we use that are sort of antiquated Italian tools. Um, there's something called a guitarra mm-hmm. that literally looks like it has guitar strings and you roll a sheet of pasta over it, and it makes this really cool square-cut spaghetti. There's something called a corzetti, which is a right. stamp from Liguria. And then, like, just a metal rod that you can make all these cool kind of southern 
shapes that you roll the pasta around it like a, a twig sort of and and i've just kind of gotten into that recently and that's that's really fun too there's a saying in music that it's the notes you don't play that makes the music and you quote i guess originally marcella hazan who said the most important ingredient is the one you leave out could you talk about that yeah, I think I, I learned that from my mentor, Tony Montuano, who, who was the chef and owner of Spiaggio when I worked there, and um, a great friend, and he used to say that all the time, and it's always just resonated with me, I think, especially when I was a young chef, and you're learning how to be creative and to create your own food, and I think any young chef has a tendency to just add and add and add and add. And this philosophy is really about subtracting and saying, how do I get the most out of each ingredient and how do I make something shine without overdoing it? And so if I'm going to do a mushroom dish, I want it to be about the mushrooms. If I'm going to do a fennel dish, I want it to be about the fennel. And I think that's just carried on to all of my cooking and I... I edit myself by always remembering that because often, you know, you still have a tendency to kind of say like, oh, what does that need? And often what it needs is for you to take something out of it. What about, let's just take two or three basic things that people do make, you know, obviously the red sauce. And and I know there's infinite versions of this. Could you just give us some tips on how to do that well since most people don't do it that well? You know, the biggest thing for that is picking tomatoes that you really like. I suggest some of my favorites, but there's so many tomatoes out there and you have to decide whether you're, you know, you like super acidic, whether you like a little more sweet, whether you like a balance. I tend to like a balance and have picked specific tomatoes for that. But so it starts kind of with ingredients. Are, are you talking about fresh tomatoes or canned tomatoes? Canned tomatoes. Yeah. It, can we just say for the moment that, that you know more than I do, but the times I've been in Italy in someone's kitchen, they're cooking with canned tomatoes. I mean, it's very common. Yeah, I mean, the only time that I make tomato sauce with fresh tomatoes is in the height of the summer. Okay, so, uh, you know, you cook so many different types of pasta. Is there there a, a recipe you just really love that you make all the time that maybe we wouldn't expect that you you would love so much? Uh, I, I, it's pretty basic, actually. My favorite to kind of eat and cook is the ravioli with red sauce. (laughs) I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's what I crave. I don't crave like duck ragu. Like it's just not something I crave. I, I really crave ravioli with red sauce and that's nostalgia. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's your happy meal. It's my happy meal. Missy, it's been a pleasure and education, and I can't wait to get back in the kitchen and make pasta. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Missy Robbins. Her book is called Pasta. You know, Missy admits that her favorite meal is ravioli with red sauce. Jacques Pepin's ultimate meal is roast chicken with salad and boiled potatoes. James Beard was fond of bacon, potato chips, and hamburgers. And, of course, Julia Child loved Pepperidge Farm goldfish. So the word ordinary is usually offered up as criticism, but great cooks are apt to find the extraordinary in everyday pleasures. As one guru said, the ordinary man seeks freedom through enlightenment. An enlightened man expresses freedom through being ordinary.
This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik talks about time and relativity in the kitchen. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now we're heading into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to learn about this week's recipe, zucchini and chickpea salad with tahini yogurt. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So chickpea salads all over the Middle East. I was in Lebanon a few years ago and had feta, you know, the yogurt and chickpea salad mm-hmm. for breakfast. But you um, squirreled off to London. As I want to do. <laughs> you found... Um, a recipe for chickpea salad that's a little more summery than what I had, I guess. I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite restaurants in London. It's Cole Office, and they do kind of modern interpretations of classic Middle Eastern cuisine. And their chickpea salad, I have to say, it's underbilled on the menu. They just refer to it as kusa, which is the Arabic for zucchini, and very little other description. In fact, I almost didn't even order it. But it turns out it is this tangle of zucchini and chickpeas and fresh herbs like dill, mint, and cilantro. And then it's all tied together by this creamy tahini dressing with sumac and olives. And there's just so much going on texturally and flavor-wise. That's all I wanted. I just wanted the salad and I would be happy. So what did you do with the other 20 things you ordered? <laughs> you just ate the zucchini chickpea salad? They must have been a little disappointed. No, you know, they just are so inventive. The chickpeas are tossed with za'atar and red wine vinegar and allium strong shallot. And, you know, we think of zucchini salad as kind of watery, frankly, because, well, after all, it's a watery vegetable. But not at all the case in this salad. It is just so delicious and such a mix of textures and flavors. And again, that creamy yogurt tahini lemon dressing, oh my God, I would put that on anything. So how are you prepping the zucchini? Is it just sliced or what? It's just sliced and salted to drain off a little bit of the water. It's very simple. You know, the chickpeas, that's where the magic comes in. We take the chickpeas and we briefly microwave them along with the shallot, the za'atar, and the red wine vinegar. And this is a trick we use at Milk Street all the time. Are these canned chickpeas or are you starting from scratch? Oh, please, canned. Keep it simple. (laughs) And as those chickpeas cool after a brief stint in the microwave, they absorb the flavors of the dressing and the other ingredients that they're with. So you get a much more flavorful chickpea that you then toss with all these other ingredients. Oh, it's amazing. I love it. So an underbuilt, mild-mannered zucchini and chickpea salad with tea and yogurt turned out to be the best thing you had at Cole Office in London. Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can get the recipe for zucchini and chickpea salad with tahini yogurt at MilkStreetRadio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be taking a few more of your calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Andy Leith. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Where are you calling from? Burlington, Vermont. Oh, nice. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) I knew Chris would approve. (laughs) How can we help you today? My grandmother used to make a, a dessert, and she taught me about vacuum with it. And what you did, you took a glass and turned it upside down, and there was fruit on the bottom and some sort of biscuit or pudding or something on top. And, you know, it baked in the oven, and all the juices from the fruit went up into the glass. I can't remember the recipe. I just remember the vacuum. And I was wondering if you could help me with that. I can't visualize this. The fruit goes on the bottom, like a stone fruit, I think. Maybe it was plums or sour cherries. And this goes on the bottom, sorry, but a non-by-13 pan? No, or a loaf pan. Okay. 
and then a, a glass cup upside down is in the center, and the fruit goes around. Oh, okay. And then now on top it. of that, some sort of yeah. biscuit. I got it. When you bake it, all the juices run up and are right. vacuumed into the cup. This is reminding me of, um, I was looking for, you know, some sort of summer peach dessert recently, and I came across a recipe from Serious Eats. It's called a peach cobbler, and apparently it was based on some church recipe or old cookbook. And what it is is so you have the halved peaches, you know, you pit them, and you put them cut side down in, I think it's a pie plate, but leaving a gap in the middle, and you put an inverted ramekin. And then you'd make the cobbler dough and you put the whole thing on top and bake it. This is all in a pie plate, a ceramic pie plate. When you take it out of the oven, you invert it and you end up with cooked peaches, cooked dough, and the ramekin is filled with sort of caramelized, reduced peach syrup. So you might, I mean, it sounded, I was like, wow, I have got to try that. It's amazing. It's like you got everything in one, you know? To ask the question, what's the point of separating the juices into the ramekin or the glass? You're going to pour them back into the cobbler when it's done, right? Right. It's I mean, fun. it's a trick. It's it, a trick. Hey, yeah. listen. Stupid, it's a trick. stupid it's a trick. dessert tricks, like, okay, like but, stupid pet tricks. It's sort of fun. No, I, I, I'm into stupid dessert tricks, but it, but it's not, there's no flavor reason to do it. It's just a, it's a cool trick. Yeah. Right. Well, you could add a little brandy to the juice. Right? Oh, now you're talking. I like the way you think. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) That would work. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Have you made it? I made it with my grandmother years ago. Right. And I just couldn't remember what went on top. You could do a biscuit like you could with a cobbler. A pandowdy was just really a pie pastry. Mm -hmm. The reason they called it pandowdy was you would dowdy it, which means at the end you would cut the pastry into the fruit so it was mixed in together. That's what it was dowdying, I guess that's what it was. And the vacuum is just a trick. Right. Yeah, I, as I recall, there's um, yeah. you know, other ingredients added to the peaches, some liquid sugar and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't remember the recipe all that well, except that I thought, geez, I'm going to make it. And now that I'm talking to you, I'm really going to make it. You got to put that on Instagram or TikTok, though. So that's a social <laughs> media recipe trick. Right. Absolutely. Right. From 1910, right? That's when the best kitchen tricks happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Man. That's great. All right. Thank you Thanks. very much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're stumped in the kitchen, give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alicia from Rochester, New York. How can we help you? I made a chicken pot pie a couple weeks ago, and it's just from a recipe that I found on the internet, but it was from scratch, minus the pie crust, Mm because I'm not ready for that. It tasted good, but I found that the flavor was kind of lacking, like it was kind of muted. Well, it's interesting, because I used to make chicken pot pie all the time, and I think I loved it because it was so bland. Oh, yeah? I mean, it's one of those things. Gravy, well, gravy, well, Yeah, gravy. it's just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> I kind of like the fact that it's not balanced. But anyway, mm-hmm. here's some things you can do. You mm-hmm. could add a little, like a tablespoon of miso to it, white miso. Okay. And that's going to add depth of flavor and sort of perk things up a little bit. Secondly, mm-hmm. you could take some white wine, like maybe half a cup and reduce it down or okay. a cup, reduce it down to a tablespoon or two. 
and you could mm-hmm. add that, you know, after you've made your velote, you have the roux, and then you're adding chicken stock, it's a velote, and you can whisk that into the velote if you wanted a little bit of extra punch to it. The other thing you could do is when you're finished with the velote, taste a little bit, you could add a little lemon juice to that. You could add a little, okay. I would say, white balsamic vinegar. You don't want a really acidic vinegar, but something mild. Mm-hmm. I know sometimes sherry is put into this dish too, which you could add. So I, I would just taste the velote when you're done and adjust it. I agree with everything Chris just said. I wouldn't be surprised if your biggest problem is lack of salt. But one other thing I thought when Chris was making all his suggestions is you could add a tiny dash of sherry vinegar because then you'd get both the acid and the sherry taste. That's a high acid vinegar, but if you were circumspect with it, it might do two things, give that nice sherry flavor, which goes wonderfully with chicken, and also a little bit of acid. I think what you're looking for in chicken pot pie is a pointer upper, and the four pointer mm-hmm. uppers that are most commonly used are salt, acid, sugar, chilies. I think we're done. Yes. Okay. I think we've <laughs> yeah, run out of perfect. ideas. Yes. So. That's a lot of different ideas to try. It so is. I will try that. I think I might try the sherry vinegar or the white wine first and yeah. look for the white miso. Alicia, thank you. Yes, yeah. thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks it was a calling. delight. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to check in with Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you this week? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm well. You know, I love Shakespeare. And one of my favorite bits of Shakespeare is the one that Rosalind speaks in As You Like It, where she talks about how differently we experience time in different places and how differently different people experience time. You remember, time travels in different paces with different persons. She'll tell you who time ambles with all, who time trots with all, who time gallops with all, and who he stands still with all. And it got me thinking, Chris, about how time moves at different paces in the kitchen. The kitchen, it seems to me, is a kind of laboratory where time warps and changes depending on <laughs> what we're doing. You know, that's the basic Einsteinian idea. Time is relative, yes. Time is relative and time warps according to what we're spatially doing and how we're spatially inhabiting it. But what am I talking about? Well, what's the single slowest thing that ever happens in the kitchen? When does time move most slowly? Well, it seems to me waiting for the pasta pot to boil, waiting for the water in the pasta pot to boil always takes what feels like hours. Even if it only takes five minutes, it feels psychologically, experientially, as though it's taking forever. The other slowest thing is when you're pitting sour cherries. <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> have you not had that experience? No, no, you, you need the $8 gadget. I have the $8 gadget. Nonetheless, basically what you're doing when you're pitting sour cherries is you're enumerating them. You can only experience them one by one by one by one by one. So even if the act of pitting the quart of sour cherries only takes you 10 minutes, it feels as though it's taking you at least 20. On the other hand... Chopping onions and garlic makes time go by far faster, right? Because you're engaged in the act of destruction, dissolution, dissolving. Of course, the fastest time of all in the kitchen is when you have two dishes, two pans on side by side. And no matter how masterly you've ever been 
at doing these things, you still find yourself in a Charlie Chaplin-like mode, racing from one to another. You know, the one exception I could think of to the rule that time is always faster than you expect it to be or slower than you imagine it's going to be in the kitchen is with a souffle. A souffle has to bake for exactly the amount of time that it needs to bake, usually in my oven, 15 minutes, and it can't go for 16 and it can't go for 14. It has to go to 15. That's the one place where I think physical time and psychological time match in the kitchen. But we can always escape time itself in the kitchen, which is ultimately what we seek to do. And we do it with two Einsteinian aids. One is wine and the other is music. When we step into the kitchen and we feel that time is going too fast or too slow, we only have to pour another small glass of red wine and put on Sinatra <laughs> or Bach or whatever your temptation is. And suddenly, time is neither too fast nor too slow. It's exactly at your own tempo. Let's expand on this. T time in life is connected to all the things one has to do, deadlines. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of ways of measuring time. When you step into the kitchen, all of a sudden, that clockwork stops. It's just the recipe. It's just the water. It's just the knife. It's just the pan. It's like scuba diving, right? You're just thinking about breathing <laughs> at the time. The rest of the world dissolves, and with it, all the ways we measure time. That's beautifully said, Christopher. I think that's true, and it's certainly one of the reasons why I love cooking. It's because as somebody who is writing to deadline – seven days a week. When I'm cooking, I don't feel that I'm ever cooking to deadline, right. even right. if I am, even if, in fact, people are waiting for the food or we have company or there are guests. I think that's true. We don't feel the deadlines of cooking in the way we feel the deadlines of our other work. I do feel that the time it takes me to pit cherries, even if it's only 10 minutes, is twice as long as the time it takes me to chop onions, even if that's physically only 10 minutes. But I agree with you that we cook in part to step outside time. It's always the dish and the food that is in control in the kitchen, not you. And, and so it's not about how long it takes to get there. It's about the taste you're going to have when you do get there in the process. So yeah, I, I, think, I think cooking is beyond time. Ah, that's beautiful. That's a title for a book, Beyond Time. I worked on that for hours. <laughs> I just want you to know. I will continue with my notion that there are different pockets of time that we pass in and out of within the kitchen, but I will agree with you that whatever the time is in the kitchen, it is not the normal time of life. Adam, thank you. More timeless thoughts from the master of culinary poetry. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member, get full access to all of our recipes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. 
Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Eglaw. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.